I, I mean, I've died on the street so many times. I, are you helping me to get out of there? Or are you taking my kid from me? I just had that feeling. I might need love now. Things that keep saying being stronger, but I am strong. Yeah, I would definitely rather walk down an alley than down the street. But I was always kind of in the, in the good of the city, so to speak, looking for things, just curious and uh, roaming. When I get stressed out, I'll color, or if my mind just starts thinking too much, I coloring is how I cope with just about everything, actually. Pretty much he saw the crown that I wear on top of my head, which, which is invisible to most, sometimes even me. Welcome, everyone, back to When You Were Homeless. This is episode seven, our final episode. Um, we thought today that we would talk about how these storytellers described what it meant to them to tell their stories. Uh, there are lots of different ways that these people talked about that, and we wanted a chance to also just reflect maybe in a larger way about what the project has meant to us, um, perhaps to the storytellers themselves, and to give you who've been listening to the whole thing some kind of a sense of what to make of it all, really. Um, but before we get into any of that, we know that you've just had a chance to listen to stories by Marissa and Anna Lynn. So we wanted to talk about those just a bit. And I guess I'll just ask you, Allison, what your thoughts were about Anna Lynn's listening to it over again. Yeah. Um, Anna Lynn's story is, I think, really hard to listen to. Yeah. And as I was listening to it again this time, I was thinking about how every time I listen to it, I feel very sad and I feel like I need to be like alone for a while. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if, if that, if listeners, if maybe you're feeling this too, if that's maybe one thing this podcast is doing is that it's giving us, it's giving everyone the kind of time to listen to these stories in a, in a slow way. And I'm like... I have never once in my life listened to a podcast more than once, <laughs> but I, I would like to recommend to everyone that you do listen to the storytellers' stories more than once, because Blake and I have been listening to them so many times, and I swear to God, every time I listen to them again, I do get something new, and I hear something in a different way. Um, so if you have a couple extra hours, I really do recommend listening to, not, not Blake and me talking, <laughs> but like the ones in between... Uh, from Anna Lynn and Dale and Don Juan and everyone you've been, we've been talking about for this podcast. Um, I just think you get something new out of it. Anyway, um, returning to Anna Lynn, unless you wanted to say something about that. I mean, I would just add that part of the reason to do that is that there are these moments when it seems like, uh, you're sort of getting lulled to sleep by certain rhythm and cadence mm -hmm. of the voice. And then some revelation will drop that yeah. floors you yeah. and you cannot believe that it's just kind yeah. of among the other right. conversational tidbits. Yeah, and that call. certainly happened for me this time listening to Anna Lynn. Yeah. One of the uh, themes, I guess, in Anna Lynn's that really struck me this time was how she mentioned, she mentions twice these jokes that people try to make and they, they're awful in the context of her story. There's the one mm. where, so there's this crazy tension between attempted humor and like her story right. is not funny. Right. So there's the one where someone comes and doesn't look in the fridge and she repeats that so much and he looks in the cupboard. She's like, why are you looking in there? And he's like, maybe your husband's in there. And she says, hey. do you know my husband's in jail? 
like uh-huh. not amusing. And then the other one is when she's talking about um, her children and people are like, oh, you must have not had TV, like, because you have a baby every year. And then she's like, actually, I hate sex for these right. reasons. Sex does not, like, I don't have children because I love having sex. And so she really, like, it's just not funny. Yeah, she turns these jokes on their head yeah. really quickly. It's yeah. true. Um, yeah, there's much to, to see in her story that mm-hmm. seems unique to me. One, that she's lived in so many places. Yeah. I mean, obviously she's from the Philippines, but she's lived in Manila, Spain, Florida, Italy, mm-hmm. Minnesota, yeah. clearly Denver. Yeah. Um, and so she brings with her a kind of experience that stands out to me mm-hmm. among the eight storytellers we've described and that we've had a chance to talk to. Um, by the same token, much of her experience resonates in a way that I think feels like it could happen anywhere. Mm -hmm. Her domestic abuse stories are, I think, sadly pretty common. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else to ask. I I guess I have some other things to note, but because you were the one to to sit down with her, I'm curious to hear your thoughts first. Yeah. um, I will probably talk about this a little bit more in the episode section, actually, but just about what it means for Anna Lynn to tell her story, but maybe in this section I'll stick to what what I noticed again this most recent listen was how her story is confusing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like I, I remember when I was speaking with her, I was never really sure how many kids, at one point she says nine and six, right. and sometimes there seemed to be three kids around. And I, when I was listening to her, and her story is so much about... Um, her horrible experience with social services, Mm -hmm. I really felt myself not wanting to ask for clarification because that felt like a very social service-y thing to do. So kind of what I think is kind of important about her story and is almost that it is confusing. And like, Mm -hmm. and this, and like we, like resisting the need to clarify and like get everything quote straight. You know? Yeah, the memories are jumbled, yeah, right? And yeah. they're all conflated into one big, giant sort of constellation of confusion yeah. that adds up to a sense of a life lived in a way that's somehow not just lacking, but mm-hmm. really somber, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. One other thing I noticed as I was listening is just a moment when she's describing the leaving of her husband Mm -hmm. whom she was with for many years and who started out by not being abusive. And that came later. And I think that's, that's really important to note that she, she didn't choose someone who was abusive. That became a thing over time. And then during the worst of the abuse, she has this affair and this other guy wants to marry her. Mm -hmm. Of course she can because she's still married, but she's trying to decide how best to leave the abuser. And the way that she describes the making of that choice, I think is really telling about Mm. maybe how domestic abuse often plays out. Like there are no good choices. And the choice Mm. she describes making is, should I tell him that I'm leaving or should I not? And she goes back and forth about whether she should or shouldn't and why. And ultimately she chooses to tell him. And now in retelling the story, she regrets that choice. Totally. But the very fact that she has to make that choice is absurd, right? And what's so interesting about all of these moments she tells us about is that it's not... 
it becomes not just about her and her husband. Then the cops get involved. Right. And, and that's the, I feel like that's one of the layers where she's like, I didn't know that then. I know now. Right. I shouldn't have done it this way because. It just triggers all of right. this bureaucratic kind of interference right. or influence, which is, of course, well-meaning, right. but which leads to any number of complications for her in terms of how she's going to be able to get out of this pretty terrible situation. Right. right. And then the last thing I think we could talk about a little bit is how, how she copes mm-hmm. and how there's that, there's that moment where she says, I don't do alcohol, I don't do drugs. Instead, I, basically, I gather things. And I thought that was so mm. sad because she, she connects that with, to me, it sounds like she's connecting that with the moment the social services says you don't have food for your kids. Mm-hmm. And so now she's like, oh, I have food. I have food. I have more food than I'm ever going to need. And she goes and collects food that she doesn't need. Right. But it really is this like connection to this trauma that happened to her. Yeah. It's a, an obsessive need mm-hmm. to sort of meet these requirements, it mm-hmm. seems like, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Well, you also heard from Marissa in the last week. Um, and just a little bit of clarification on Marissa. So Allison actually sat down with Marissa, and then I did the edits for the story. And so we both have had reason to be kind of intimately involved in thinking about her words and, and what they meant. So we both have, I'm sure, many things to think about. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, I guess, to ask you what it was like to sit down with her. I, one of the things I noticed as I was listening this time, and I think I had noticed it before, but it was more prominent this time, yeah. is that her voice and her attitude, God, I hope this sounds okay. It has a kind of like Mr. Rogers quality to it. And what, <laughs> what I mean by that, mean? <laughs> what I mean by that is that she has these sort of like moments of seemingly innocent wisdom, hmm. but they're actually quite wise. Yeah. Um, and they seem to be breaking things down in this way that can at times feel simple until you put it into the larger context of the complexity of her life. And mm. having just, you know, having recently watched the documentary about Mr. Rogers, knowing that there's a movie out about his life yeah. played by Tom Hanks, I'm just aware of this kind of like weird mm. renaissance of remembering Mr. Rogers as this important cultural figure who dispensed <laughs> wisdom yeah. to people who were kids, but also in a mm. way to the parents. Yeah. I feel like people are coming to this point of realizing that he was always talking to both. And as I was listening to Marissa hmm. this time around, I thought, God, she's really talking about a lot of things in this way that um, that feels, what, how best to put it, like educational in the hmm. best possible sense of that wow. word. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to give you an example right now. Like, for example, she says, um, well, one thing that can make it harder for yourself is if you deal drugs. <laughs> Another thing, right? She has this kind of cadence to her talk that, um, you know, she's telling you that because it's true. Yeah. It's been true for her. Right. 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 Um, I don't want to linger too long on this, but I'm just noticing what I picked up and wondering how you picked up on her cadence, her rhythm, her kind of attitude toward life as you were listening to her in the moment. Interesting. I did not see Mr. Rogers coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She... When we spoke uh, near the end, you can hear like this rattling and there was this kind of jewelry in the room we were talking on and she went right for it and she was just playing with jewelry the whole time. And I remember there not being a lot of eye contact, uh, which maybe changes the way you would envision like a, 
a Mr. Rogers sure. kind of kind of conversation. Um, but you're right, and I think also there's so much repetition in her story, mm-hmm. and I think you're that's adding to that's part of what you're noticing. I see. Is this and she always kind of balances things out, like some good, some bad, right? Um, which does seem to add to the wisdom, I think. Right. There's this notion of I need to be balanced in portraying mm-hmm. things, both in terms of her own life, but also in terms of, for example, her judgment on services, right? right. Like she has many great things to say right. about the Dolores apartments, I remember. Right. Uh, and she balances that out by saying things about Samaritan House that she's mm-hmm. heard that feel mm-hmm. not so great. Um, and her discussion about the lottery system is really interesting to compare with Erica's. Totally. Completely e- different, Erica's right? Erica's pissed and she's like, this yeah. is stupid. And uh, Marissa's kind of like, it's a, it's a lottery. Maybe you could do your Mr. Rogers impression <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, you have to try every week, and sometimes you get in, but sometimes right. you don't, and you just have to keep trying, and right. maybe eventually you'll get a chance to be in the apartments. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I much appreciated it. It was yeah. a very comforting voice to listen to, yeah. both for, for those associations, but also for its... It's kind of confidence about itself, True. right? And and she mentioned so many times how she's strong and how her background made yeah. her strong. Like, I think she first starts talking about her family and she says, my family should have been there for me, but instead I was there for them. Right. And then, and then she also, and then like she kind of goes back and forth between how her family has done wrong by her and then how the court systems do wrong by her. Right. And a lot about... Um, but even so, she never sounds upset. She, it's very no. like, this is how it is. Right. Yeah. yeah, there's that wisdom. I keep using that word. I should use a different no, one. There's too. that like... Um, Sense of being wise. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also this, this set of things that she has to say about being transgender. Yeah. That feels very um, considered. Um, we've talked before on this program about her being this kind of like mentor yeah. to younger transgendered people. Um, but there's more to it than that too. I think there's a part where she describes kind of the fun of being, as she calls it, like being bitchy with yeah. other transgenders, right. as she calls them. And the fun of that, the right. kind of like playfulness of it that felt very um, just joyful for her yeah. in a way that was quite sweet, I thought. Yeah, another moment. She does seem, she seems very good at finding moments of joy. Like, she goes to the movie. I just love how she brought up going to the movie. Right. She's like, I thought it'd be a good thing to do and eat popcorn. Yeah, and I don't know if like, you can catch it in how we've edited this, but, like, you were like, oh, well, what movie? And she right. couldn't even remember, right? And it took <laughs> right. a little while, and finally she came Captain around to Marvel. it. But the point yeah. was, like, just to go right. out and to be totally. in public and to do a thing that yeah. involves no stress. And that usually, suppose it seems everyone thinks homeless people shouldn't be allowed to or supposed to right. or able to do. Totally. Yeah. That's right. Well, um, so those are, I guess, either some of our thoughts about those two stories, or if you haven't listened, maybe you can take them as teasers and as an excuse to decide to go back and listen to those for the first time and see what you missed. Yeah. Uh, we did mention that this will be our final episode, and as we're preparing for it the last couple of days... Allison and I have been just kind of wondering, like, what's the best way, not really to put a bow on it, because there is no such Mm. thing that you can do here, but how best to get you all out there to think in a way that feels maybe authentic to the kinds of stories that you've heard? And like, are these even stories or are Mm. these just sort of like one hour long 
rants by people who are frustrated with their lives, but who also have things to tell you that are joyful. Like how best to even Hmm. give a sense of what we think this has been. Um, And we continue to think about that. But for now, we're going to start this by, I think, describing or giving you some excerpts in which our eight storytellers talk about what it meant to them to tell their stories. Like what value was there inherently? And, And in some cases, you'll see explicit references to the telling of the story. And in others, because there was no such explicit reference from these particular people, we'll give you some excerpts that we'll kind of interpret a little bit and try to imagine ways that they have something to do, these excerpts, with this notion of what it meant for them to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that'll give you some some sense of like a value to the project beyond the telling of a story for its own sake, which I think we should also mention um, as a, as a real thing that, that I know I have, I feel value in right, when I tell absolutely. a story to someone just having told it mattered. Absolutely. Um, so with that said, I guess we'll go ahead and start. Um, Allison, did you want to start us off maybe? Yeah, sure. So first we're going to just, we're going to actually keep hearing from Marissa, what it felt like for Marissa to tell her story. Um, keeping kind of keeping in mind, I think it's important with Marissa's all her experience with the court and how she doesn't right. say it explicitly, but how clearly she feels like it hasn't been a good experience with the court system. And so there's always this tension between details on a page and what a person's actual story is. That's right. kind of the trope, right? Like uh-huh. that's one of the problems with um, the system, I think, is mm-hmm. that there isn't the time to hear everyone's story. You have to fit it all onto a, a document. Yeah, and she. Re- I remember just quickly, I remember that yeah. she was very keen to say, well, the lawyer listened. Right. Right. That, that was very important that right. he had listened to oh, what yeah. she had to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here is Marissa talking about what it felt like to tell her story. It's a relief, like a weight lifted off of you. I'm tired right now. But I, was, I felt like I've, I've accomplished some things for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, if the story gets out there and mm-hmm. people hear the different sides of mm-hmm. the world. I would like them to see not to be so judgmental, mm-hmm. see what really the problem is, mm-hmm. or it might not be the problem, it might be the other person that has the problem. Yeah. Um, I just go through what, what they're going through or understand that everybody suffers, no matter what situation. And I, I think that several of our storytellers, as you'll hear, they do talk about... Um, you know, it's telling a story, they're hoping that other people will see things differently, right. as Marissa does. But as you said earlier, Blake, it, things Marissa say seem kind of simple. And then when you put them in the context of her story, they kind of compound. There's a resonation. There's, it resonates a certain, yeah. in a certain way, for sure, differently. You yeah. understand that there's complexity behind that statement. Right. So I think in what she just said, there's the court system, there's her family, there's being trans, there's... Having yeah. a lover in prison, there's, right. yeah. Right. And then next we're moving to Anna Lynn. And I do mm-hmm. want to say, when I, f- this, when I first sat down with Anna Lynn, she was like, an hour's not enough. Mm. And she felt, she very strongly wanted to do a giant project of telling her story and someone publishing it. I told yeah. her, that ain't me. <laughs> but right, right. if anyone's out there 
seriously, I could, I would, if you wanted to sit down with Annalyn, I don't think there's going to be any money in it, <laughs> but she's right. looking for someone to tell her story. I think her main audience is maybe social services, but I think she also knows her story is unique and needs mm-hmm. to be told. So if she's looking for someone to collaborate with. And, you know, I just came from St. Francis Center where a woman sat down with me oh, yeah. and she wanted me to help her fill out a form that she needed to bring to a doctor so that they would pay for her services given some circumstance. And unsolicited, she just went into this story. It took her probably 25 minutes to tell it about this horrific abuse she suffered that's caused her to need to go to the dentist. She told me her name. She told me about seven or eight things about the last 20 years of her life. And, I think to bring that up now because the way that she had this real just need to be mm. heard, it sounds a lot like the way you're describing Anna Lynn. Yep. I think that's right. And that happens, listeners, that happens all the time at these right. shelters. It really does. Because if you think about it, people they're encountering, if it's at the doctor's office or someone in sh- social services, they're on timelines and they have five right. minutes. Right. And they don't have time to hear the story. Yeah. Uh, so here is Anna Lynn talking about what it felt like to tell her story. And also, hopefully someone out there can help me get my kids. I cannot do it alone. But the battle is not over yet. That, that's my children. I want to move them away from where they are because I know they're being abused. There, there's only one mother on earth that can give that love to your children. I know now, but if someone out there is willing to get the kid who's been abused, try to look at it a little bit differently or help the person who needed the most. Instead of young the children or she put the kid in danger, you don't know what goes in that story. You don't know what the woman goes through. That you don't know, that repetition, yeah. that's at the heart of, of a few of these stories. Mm-hmm. That sense of like... I need to let you know some things right. that you don't know. Right. You probably have it wrong in your head and you don't know and mm-hmm. I do and mm-hmm. let me tell you. Right? Yep. And I think Annalyn's is the most tangible, for maybe lack of a better word, and urgent right. of any of our storytellers. She's like, seriously, people need to know what's happening with social services yeah. and how they screwed me over. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, one more quick story along those lines. Yeah. I, I once worked repeatedly with a man who was absolutely insistent that I help him tell the story of organized crime in New York. Whoa. And he had lived there, and he had been married yeah. to a woman who was connected to the mafia. Wow. And he would come every day with all these papers that he wow. had that, in his mind, proved you know wow. this thing that was true. And he wanted to write a book that was sort of a memoir, but he really is like, no, this needs to be about how the laws need to change with regard to this issue. Wow. And I'm going to walk you through all the things. Um, so, yeah, I think in that way I can point to evidence that Annalyn's story is, is certainly not the only one mm-hmm. of that type. Mm-hmm. We're going to turn now to Devin. Um, and Devin doesn't have anything that he said explicitly about what it was like to tell his stories. But there are a couple of excerpts that I'm going to include here and talk around as a way of kind of making a case for what I think was was most important for mm-hmm. him in telling the story. Um I'll just give you the first quote and then talk around it a bit. 
I like the trucking because it's good money, like, very good money. But I'm asking myself, like, bro, is that what you really, 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 really want to do? Yeah. Like, you know, is that a reason why you lost your license? You didn't jump into a driving job yet, like, because, you know, you didn't, you didn't pass trucking school the first time, and you never tried to embrace it again back home. That use of the you like he's mm. talking to himself mm. in this moment yeah. i mean he's being interviewed by me and he's telling me his story but in this moment he's not talking to me he's talking yeah. to himself yeah. about what he really 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 wants to do yeah and i very much got the sense in other parts of the interview with him with his telling of his story that that he was keen to figure it out and he was very passionate about figuring it out even if he didn't quite yet know what the thing was that he would want to do with mm-hmm. his life and again remember Devin was really very young I would put him somewhere between 22 and 26 probably wow. I, was, um, I was picturing him a little older that's interesting yeah, yeah he was not that old at all yeah um, and so he's um, you can see him I think in that quote kind of asking himself this question right. and then later in the interview he seems to come to some kind of like more decisive understanding of what he might want to do. And so I'll play a clip in mm-hmm. which you see that happen. I'm out here in the world now, still looking for jobs, still wake up in the morning and get out of my bed, and still deal with people when I have to. Yeah. So I know that it's hard. So I, I know people that can't even do that. Like, their emotions have me so caught up that they don't want to do nothing but just sit in one spot and, and like, just down so I want to be an individual that can enlighten me and just give people a push like I'm not going to be no uh, specialized big vocabulary word person like I'm going to give it to them straight up how do you get through situations like because right. I didn't I didn't do any situation where I just wanted to give up on everything like I'm like I'm, I'm, I'm tired man I just want to die like I've been in those who, in those stages. Yeah. And the only thing that got me out of that was like good music, talking to good people, yeah. like Michelle B. Um, and, and, and having fixed my eyes, I had to believe in myself. And there are a couple things about that quote that really stand out to me. For one, you see that the way that he got out of this bad place that he's describing is in part by telling his story to right. Miss Shelby. And right. Miss Shelby appears el- elsewhere in his his story um, as a central figure of like someone who really helped him. And right. clearly part of how she was able to do that had to do with listening right. to him. And that was very important. He seems to have taken a lesson out of it that he wants to be that mm-hmm. for other people. And so the larger context for this quote is that he was talking about the possibility of becoming this kind of like social services, peer services type of person to people in need. That's a thing that he sees that he might want to do. Um, and so, interestingly, for Devin, it seems that telling his story and getting comfortable with it through the hour seems to have been part of the way that he comes to the notion that, wow, maybe I could actually mm. listen to other stories like this. Right. And that that would be the work of being a peer uh, social worker, whatever right. the title is. Right. Yeah, that and, that is the work. And yeah. he seemed very passionate and maybe even more concrete about this idea than any other, mm-hmm. aside from the poem that he read. Right of any of other ideas that he put out there for himself. Um, so that felt significant to me. Again, this could be just me reading into it, but that's, that's what I took from sitting down with him. And you were saying he did feel more relaxed by the end of the hour. He did. Right. I thought, yeah, I thought so. Uh, next we have Erica, perhaps we'll, we'll hear from her and then we'll discuss it a little bit after. 
This is Erica talking about storytelling, telling her own story. I don't have secrets, and I don't hold shit back. I give you my real, like, thoughts. And I don't know. I, I, again, I signed up to do this because I, I felt like maybe, like, people could benefit from getting a real opinion or a real, you know, the information coming from somebody that's going to give you their their real thoughts, I guess you say. Um, I know even if there's one person that listens to me talk or reads whatever, like, it's going to make somebody think about something a little bit differently Mm -hmm. or make them not look at every fucking person walking down the street with a book bag as a fucking junkie that like just doesn't want to work or something I don't know I'm all about like having people open up their minds and like view situations different or maybe put their their thoughts in a different area or I don't know I, I just don't be so judgmental and so full of hate or something. You don't know what the person that like that you just called a bum, you know. But I don't know. You never know what somebody's going through or what their thought process is. So we have that theme again of of people wanting their story to be heard. So in that sense of you don't know that we talked about, right. you don't know. You don't know what it's like. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting about what we just heard from Erica when she says, I don't have secrets, I don't hold shit back. And it made me think about what we were talking about a few episodes ago and how she's, she wonders why she's intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it, it's, I think it's in our culture that holding shit back is a way to be successful and it's a way to get in certain doors, right? depending on what your shit is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm one, I'm just wondering if that is adding to why she's intimidating to some people um, and then how that kind of relates to storytelling in general. That's know? really interesting, this notion of withholding. I, I think one way that hers kind of furthers what we saw earlier mm-hmm. from Anna Lynn and from others, this notion of, of you don't know mm-hmm. and, and how the point of the story is to get people to know. Mm-hmm. She wants to change people's minds, mm-hmm. it seems. And there's this line, don't be so judgmental. She clearly feels judged. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of our storytellers. They feel judged. And right. so they're very sensitive to not doing that themselves mm-hmm. um, and trying to get people to not do that to them. Uh, and that feels like a large part of why she told her story. Look, right. I want you to know my story so that you don't judge me so quickly, so that you feel like you maybe have a little bit of a quicker trigger when it comes to coming to conclusions about the people you see on the street. And interestingly, we talked about this earlier with Erica too, yet she is also judging other people experiencing homelessness. (laughs) She, like she, she really, she's like, don't judge me. I'm not like them. Yeah. Equals judging them. That's Um, right. That's right. So I wonder if that is kind of adding to that intensity, this sort of like ironic loop. Um, Next we have Dale. Um, who, again, didn't mention anything specific to what it meant to tell his story, but who did wax poetic, obviously, on a number of things, if you've listened to his his story. 
Um, one of them being this question of, of I think, judgment, um, empathy, that I'll come around to after I give mm-hmm. the quote. So, you know, no, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I mean, if you live in a place where you're eating well and you've got a good place to live and you drive a nice car, basically you have a wall of your vested interests where you don't even see people that are on the street. You know, I'll give you an example. Get this. I had some people, I was in real trouble. And I, and I said, I, I need to get taken to Porter Hospital, right? And, and I was at St. Francis Center, and I said, I will be right out sitting by the door. These people came down and looked for me for over two hours, and they couldn't even see me. They couldn't even see me. And I was sitting right there. Uh, I think that tells you a little it bit does. about it. says quite a lot. <laughs> I think for Dale, this story that he told me, it, it was absolutely about being seen. Mm-hmm. He had so much urgency to how he told mm-hmm. this story, to how he told every part of it. And this is, you know, this is where the story ends. These are the final lines of his story. Right. I, I think that urgency that others would equate to like changing people's mind for Dale, I don't know if it's about changing people's mind. Hmm. I think he's quite certain that people aren't going to change. Hmm. He wants to vent. Hmm. He wants to say, this is what it's like to be in my situation. You don't get seen. See me now. Hear me now. This is what I have to say. True. I th- it, it does still feel sort of like a... It's, it does feel like another form of you don't know. But mm-hmm. it's, it's like a... Um, but it is... It's with a slant, right? Because it's like... He understands... Because he's made it very clear he's lived a very different life before with, with this... Vest, this wall of vested interest, as he puts it. That's right. He's he's had some some high dollar bill <laughs> livings, and yeah, I think it's true. I think that when you hear him say those words, when you live in a place where you're eating yeah. well and you've got a good place to live, he's not just talking about yeah. some abstract thing that he notices when people look right. at him now. He's been there. He's thinking about himself. Yeah, and how he used to be. Right. So it it is it's a different kind of implication, I think, of other right. people. Right. That's it's, right. It's not that you don't know. It is that you don't know, and I'm, f- I'm finding it hard to articulate it. Mm. Um, there's something else going on there. I think you already probably said it, Blake, and I'm just walking around it with my words. He's definitely, he's definitely frustrated. <laughs> yeah. You can hear it. <laughs> that yeah. tone of voice tells it all. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll just let that hum, and you listeners can fill in <laughs> my words that I couldn't find. <laughs> um, the next person we'll hear from is Nicole. She made it clear that she has experienced homeless a couple different times in her life. And so this is her explaining what it's like to tell her story. It's kind of um, a bittersweet feeling because it brings up old emotions, but I want people to know. So 
if there's somebody else that has a similar situation, they know that they're not the only person in that situation. I feel that way a lot. So I think there's a couple of interesting things in that. It seems many of the people we've heard from so far are talking to Blake and Allison, Blake or Allison, mm-hmm. and people like Blake and Allison who are not experiencing homelessness. Nicole seems to be speaking to other people experiencing homelessness. And she's... Yeah. So that they're not the only person in that situation. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful for her to think in that way, despite yeah. the fact that in the moment she's talking yeah. to you, right? right? For her to have that kind of awareness that totally. this story is going to be bigger than this moment in which she's telling right. it. It's um, very optimistic of her. Right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Right. Yeah. No, I appreciate that about her, her statement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, I think, pretty clearly distinguish this storyteller from others in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me think to more directly address any listeners out there who might be homeless. I'm yeah. cu- we'd be very curious to hear from you Absolutely. what you think about how we frame these issues, yeah. what you think of these eight stories Absolutely. that you've heard. Um, we would we would just really enjoy hearing from you, I think. Yeah, please do reach out in whatever way, website or whatever. Um, one more thing I wanted to say about Nicole's is um, the bittersweet thing, and it it b- brings up old emotions. The fact that it, it can be hard to tell your story and some people don't because it's hard and because it's traumatic and going back there is a traumatic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she, I think Nicole more than anyone n- notes that. Right. Whereas right. Dale really is just going to jump into right. the m- most traumatic stuff because he right. wants. And we've talked on this show many times before about how often trauma would just come up unsolicited. Right. You got the sense that for Nicole, it was a very calculated decision to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And here you can see her explaining why. Right. Because she sees value in it for other people in her situation. Right. So you can really see her story as a kind of an act of selflessness. Yeah. Perhaps. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Our next... Excerpt will come from Don Juan, and much as with others that I've described, this one isn't precisely about what it was like for him to tell his story, though it does get at things that I think are connected to storytelling, which is why I included it. Here's the quote, and again, I'll talk about it afterward. He's a great guy. Matter of fact, I've got to remember him because he's maybe fourth on my list of inspirational people for me. Um... Mr. Lufio, number one, world history teacher, um, and he was also new Greek, new Latin. He had an archaeology degree, and he was an anthropologist, and he took pictures with his family every summer all over the world. Hmm. He number one. Pi Dem Blanken, my favorite photojournalist, awesome. Then Anthony Bourdain was number three, because he saw my job. Like, there was my freaking brains. I guess he had it before me. So. <laughs> but that was it. That was, that was, that's okay. when I went to school to, to, probably didn't blame him photojournalists, my high school teacher, anthropologist, archaeologist, take his family to take pictures and write stuff all throughout the summer, and the boy, they, those women, they, all three mm-hmm. of them carry the, 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 the core of what I enjoy doing. And what do all three of them have at their core? I think they're all storytellers. This history teacher who takes photographs and uses them to tell the story of his family, Pyatt and Blanken, a famous photojournalist who tells the story of other people across the world for many decades. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, beloved of CNN's Parts Unknown, 
that tells the story of cultures around the world. I mean, knowing those source materials is clearly so important to him. Mm-hmm. And they speak with such inspirational verve to what he wants to do with his life. He wants to tell stories too. And if right. you remember his his story, you'll remember him talking about four seasons in a day as mm-hmm. this project, this essentially a photojournalism project that he has in mind that in his mind would tell a story not only of something external to him, but about his own journey of becoming a storyteller. Sure. Uh, it's very, it's at the core, as he says, it's at the core of who he wants to be and what he enjoys doing. I was just going to emphasize that phrase too. All, he says all three of them carry the core of what I enjoy doing. And that's such a, that's such a Don Juan way of putting it because yeah. he's such a, a journey, journeyer. And mm-hmm. you can tell he's carrying things with him and he's always kind of seeking something to do with what he's carrying almost. I don't know if you would agree with I do. that description. Um, this is kind of neither here nor there, but I am wondering, did you talk to Don Juan before or after Anthony Bourdain passed? Oh, gosh, what a good question. Bourdain died in March, right? I don't, I don't know. I think so. I think this would yeah. have been actually before. Before, interesting. Yeah, so I don't yeah. think that he would have been in any way eulogizing him. Yeah. He would yeah. have been just kind of like endearingly jealous right. <laughs> right. Of, this, of this life. And then the last on our... The last we'll hear from is uh, Lucky. Um, And as we've talked about several times, Lucky is is clearly a very natural storyteller, the way she takes her time and sets up the moments. You can tell she's just, (laughs) she knows what she's doing. (laughs) Like she is a storyteller. Um, And I think from this quote, well, we might understand a little bit more why it does seem like she's, she does tell her story often. This wasn't like a unique experience for her, I don't think. I see. Um, so we'll, we'll listen to Lucky and then discuss a little bit after. I feel like I do expose a lot of myself mm-hmm. to people. I talk a lot about myself and a lot about my daughter and a lot yeah. about what I want to do in life. Um, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of random people know my story. <laughs> yeah, but because it's something that ails me and pains me, but it's also mm-hmm. something that is a trial that I'm happy I had to go through. And it, and it is, it's also, it's a enlightened story. It's a happy story. Still, you know, a young lady just trying to find her place. There's nothing wrong with that. Just as long as it, it happens before you destroy another young lady's life. My daughter. So I feel like the more I talk about it, the more upfront it is right there in my face, and I can't run from it. And the support of the gathering place, the support of uh, House of Purpose, the support of um, church, and uh, work fellowshipping with other human beings and like-minded people uh, in any way. Um, be it sitting down at the table and having a cup of coffee to me and you here, me telling you my story. It all helps. It really does. Wow. Yeah. I feel like, but Lucky is doing what I think we were, or she's expressing what I think, Blake, you and I were hoping would be a big part of this project is that storytelling would be helpful to the people who are telling their stories. Right. Um, And Lucky already knows that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is why she chose to come. Yeah. She's got such an awareness of herself and such a, a tendency, as you can see there, to frame her own life as a story, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I am living a story, and this is what that story is. Yeah. 
Right. And somehow the framing of the story in that way helps her understand where she's trying to go, maybe. Yeah. You're reminding me a moment in her story. She says, she talks about when her mom relapses and she says, I don't know why she chose to do that. That's her story, but this is my story. And then she keeps talking. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that ownership, right? Mm-hmm. She She's owning who she is. It's a way of creating an identity for herself that mm. she feels like the right one from which to emerge out of what she's in. Mm-hmm. Um, her daughter being at the heart of that, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then that final line about how like her being here telling her story to you is, is a large part of what helps. Mm-hmm. I think for someone like this, it's, it's absolutely the case. I, I do think we should acknowledge that, that not all of them, not all of our storytellers, and by the way, we keep calling them storytellers. Right. There's a number of ways you could think about who they are. Right. People experiencing homelessness, right. more crassly, homeless. Um, interviewees. Interviewees. There's yeah. so many ways to think about who they were. We, we made a conscious decision at the beginning mm-hmm. of this project that we would call them storytellers. And here we are at the very end of the last episode, kind of questioning our own decision yeah. to do that. I yeah. think that there's no doubt that Lucky would call herself a storyteller. I don't know that every other person that we interviewed would call themselves yeah. that, um, w- which raises a kind of larger issue about like, what is, what does it even mean to talk about your life as a homeless person? And how is that either a story or not mm-hmm. a story? How is it maybe something else? And how are we calling it a story when it's, we don't even know where we are in the story. If a life story is birth till death, we don't know where Yeah. We what's are. the beginning, middle yeah. and end of any of the things that you've mm-hmm. been listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that we have in mind to leave you listeners with a, a kind of quote Mm-hmm. that comes from Travels with Lizbeth, a memoir by Lars Einer that I've cited before on this show and talked about. Um, and there are many moments in that man's kind of epic journey in which he stops, because he has plenty of time on his hands from moment to moment, <laughs> to reflect on like what is, the, what is the nature of even of this story that I'm telling you. Um, and he has this quote about you know, what, what is the shape of the story of a homeless person? Is there a shape? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's super depressing. And before we give it to you, because we're kind of (laughs) thinking that it might end the show, we want to talk about some of these notions, I think a little bit, uh, and leave it to you to maybe just listen to Lars Einer, who, by the way, is going to be read by Jeff Stacks. His quote will be read by Jeff Stacks, who is responsible for all the music on this show. If you've been listening to the credits, you will have heard his name. Um, we love Jeff. He's been great yeah. to us in the composition of this music. Indeed. And he also just has a better voice, I think. I think than, it's true. Than either of us. And so <laughs> he has we wanted, proven that to be the case. We wanted him to get the last word for sure. Yeah. Um, but while we're talking about this issue of the shape of a homeless person's story, I wonder if you had any thoughts about that, Allison. Well, I, I don't know if this is kind of revealing what the quotation does that we're going to use, but it does bring up the notion of deus ex machina. Right. Which... Uh, Blake, you and I were talking earlier, what does that mean for mm-hmm. a person experiencing homelessness? And you brought up earlier the kind of the kind of cliche is like, oh, well, if I win the lotto, my story will turn around right. and everything will be better. And it's kind of said tongue in cheek, I think, mostly because we know we won't win the lotto, but also because I think we all know that it won't really change everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, I mean, we've, Blake and I really just have been chatting and like, really wondering like what 
what would change Dale's story? What would be the break for Lucky? What would what does Don Juan is there one thing Don Juan needs? Right. Like, does he need some kind of assistance that he's not getting? Does right. is it what he really needs? Just like one landlord to right to cut him a break irrationally and, and generously cut him a break, right? Not do a credit check, right? Like, right. Is this really the thing? Right? right? Are all these people waiting for just some sort of outside force mm-hmm. to kind of unbelievably shift things seismically for them, such that? all their plans can at least be attempted, right? Uh, yeah, and then returning to the idea of story, is if that one thing exists, is that the beginning of a story? Is that the end of a story? Is that the middle of right. a story? Right, um, Obviously, we don't know. Um, but these, these thoughts have really been on our mind as we've been creating many stories and then trying to sort of create the larger story of this podcast but it not really having a, a center to hold it, really. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. what is the center of this? Yeah. I guess we're... You, you made it, guys. You made it to the <laughs> end, so I, I guess thank you. Is, is anyone listening? Anyone? Um, right, sure. yeah. Is anyone out there? Hello, hello, hello. hello. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess what we hope for you in leaving you with this quote is just to leave you with a question. Mm. And so here, yeah. then, is Jeff Stacks reading an excerpt from Travels with Lisbeth by Lars Einer. Thanks again so much for being a part of this journey with us. Thank you for listening. And please reach out. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Home is the natural destination of any homeless person. But nothing can be done in a day, in a week, in a year to get near that destination. No perceptible progress can be made. In the absence of progress, time is nearly meaningless. Some days are more comfortable than others, and that is all the difference. A homeless life has no storyline. It is a pointless, circular rambling about the stage that can be brought to a happy conclusion only by deus ex machina. Lars Einer. For web design and sound support, thanks to Jonathan Howard. Our theme music was composed by Jeff Stacks. For support for interview space and scheduling, thanks to Melanie Dean and The Gathering Place. And at St. Francis Center, thanks to Andrew Spinks for permissions and support. Also thanks to the DU, the University of Denver Writing Program and its Executive Director, Douglas Hesse. And another special thanks to Julie Parrish, Director of the University of Denver Writing Center. Thanks also to Kateri McRae for sound support and equipment, and to Andreas Hans for social media outreach and photography. Thank you, Chris Bunch. And thank you, Sarah Hoffman.